Okay, uh, as per request, we're going to take a look at Sugyot of Hanukkah. Um, this needs a big introduction. Uh, by big, I just mean long. And we have, you're going to ask, how can you possibly give a shiur on Hanukkah and start out with Sukim? Because Hanukkah happened after the biblical era. So, correct. Um, I could get super midrashic about it and start with Vaihi or, but I don't need to do that. The, the Sukim that are here, are here for reasons that we're going to plug into later. So we're not going to look at them yet, but we're going to reference reference them back. But Sukim always come first. Um, we're also going to take a look at a genre of literature that we don't generally interact with in this issue, or I don't think we ever have, and that is what we call Bayit Shani literature, Second Temple period literature, which is um, that literature that was produced by the Jewish community the religious Jewish community, in some cases, sectarian religious Jewish community, uh, chiefly in Israel between the period of the end of biblical prophecy and biblical writing and the beginning of the rabbinic period. That's what we call Second Temple uh, literature. And chiefly, we're talking about books that make up the Apocrypha and the Pseudepigrapha, and I'll, I'll introduce it when we come along. So all that's coming up. But first, the introduction uh, to the Shi'ur. Um, Hanukkah is a, uh, a, a, a problematic holiday, I'll put it that way. And you see it right away when you open up Mishnayot. Because, you know, you open up Seder Moed, which is dedicated to the calendar, and you see Shabbat and Eruvin, you see Psachim, you see Yoma, you see Rosh Hashanah, you see Sukkah, you see Tanit, you see Megillah, you see a Masachet for every holiday, the one exception is Shavuot, Shavuot, I mean, how much can you write about cheesecake? Uh, it doesn't have any unique halachot, really. Um, and the the unique halachot of Shavuot, after with the Beit HaMikdash, and they're covered in Menachot. And you even have a Masechet about Cholamoid, Moed Katan. You have Masechet about fast days. You have Masechet Megillah, which is chiefly not about Purim, because again, there's not that much to write about. How many recipes for lot, lot, for Amantashim can you have? Kidding, but there's not a whole lot to write about Purim. And so most of Masachet Megillah is really about related things and tangential things, but there's a Masachet. Uh, there is no Masachet Chanukah at all. Not only is there no Masachet Chanukah in the Mishnah, there's not even a single Mishnah devoted to Chanukah. Chanukah shows up in the Mishnah in either a referential context, like for instance, Mishnah Masachet Bikurim tells us that you can bring Bikurim until Sukkot, and then uh, you can bring them even from Sukkot until Chanukah, because uh, Chanukah happens to be the end of the olive harvest, and olive is the last of the seven species to be harvested, and it is brought from Bikurim. Uh, and uh, whether or not it has a full status of Bikurim or not is a machloket, so Chanukah is mentioned there. Chanukah is mentioned in the context of uh, Kriyata Torah. So in Megillah, where there's a list of different Kriyata Torahs, is on Chanukah, we read Nisim. okay? Um, Hanukkah is mentioned as a, a total arbitrary reference point of the year as a date. Uh, and the mitzvah of Hanukkah, which is lighting a nair, uh, is only mentioned one time in the whole Mishnah. And it's mentioned in the Mishnah in a very um, uh, by the way kind of mention, an inadvertent mention, where it's talking about damages. It's the end of the sixth parak of Bavakama and talks about a case where a person, um, where two different people together caused a conflagration with a lot of monetary loss and who's liable for it. 
And the issue of if it was my Ner Hanukkah that I put outside and you got uh, your materials got lit as a result, maybe perhaps I'm off the hook because I had a right to put it outside because Ner Hanukkah. That's about it. Which, if you think about it, is kind of strange. And the silence of it is strange because Hanukkah, not only in the modern era, both in Israel and America, for two very different reasons, has become a very central holiday. And I don't just mean Adam Sandler. It's a, it's a, uh, a very popular holiday. Uh, again, the reasons are different. But in Israel, Hanukkah has been a very powerful holiday because of its clear association with Zionism and with the army. And uh, I remember as a kid being in Yerushalayim and the annual run, I don't know if they do it anymore, but the annual run of the torch from Modi'in to Yerushalayim. And I was a kid and I was standing there when the runner ran into the old city and I ran with him uh, partway down to the Kota. And I'll never forget that. I was this a long time ago. So there's that whole association. In America, there's other reasons that Hanukkah became so prominent. Uh, we'll leave them aside. But Hanukkah has always been an important holiday. So you wonder, how come there's no Masachet Hanukkah? Um, and how come there's not even a Mishnah about Hanukkah? Now, Hanukkah is mentioned in Tanaitic literature, uh, but not in the Mishnah. And so that's what we're going to deal with. And that's why the title of this year is Breitot Hanukkah, the Breitot of Hanukkah, because there are no Mishnayot of Hanukkah. Uh, very quickly, there's a few theories as to why Hanukkah does not have a Masachet, uh, and um, they all have to do with, in one way or another, a certain uh, set uh, sense of ambivalence that the rabbis, notably Rabbi Yudanasi and the rabbis of the Mishnah, had about Hanukkah. Uh, a lot of that ambivalence has to do with the heroes of the story. The heroes of the story, of course, and I apologize to Alan and to uh, Abe, and to Ben, and to Sherwin. Uh, they were Kohanim, and the rabbis were not happy about that. They weren't happy about it on several counts. Uh, first of all, on an ideological count, is that uh, these Kohanim, who the heroes of the story, are a family of Kohanim. We're going to read about it Thursday night in our tefillah. Yochanan ben Matyah ben Yochanan Kohen Gadol, the Hashmani family. Uh, as a result, as the big Kohanim, so Kohanim can fight, okay, uh, but uh, Kohanim are supposed to remain devoted to devotions and to the Mikdash. And the minute that uh, about 30 years or so, 20 years after the miracle of this war uh, had happened, uh, when members of that family stepped in, I believe it was Yonatan, who stepped into the position of king, that became a problem. And the Hashmonaim, from that moment for the next 130 years or so, until Antigonus was assassinated and Herod took over, uh, the kings were all descendants of these guys. They were all Kohanim. And, and take a look. If you're interested in the Ramban in Breshid uh, Memtet Pasuk Yod, the Ramban at length talks about the terrible sin that these Kohanim did by, first of all, violating their kuna by getting involved in politics and usurping the position of Yehuda by being kings. That was a two-part problem. That's ideological. Then there was a pragmatic one, which is the Hashmonai kings were brutal. They were Hellenized. They were Sadduceized. And the rabbis had a lot of problems with them. 
uh, say the name Alexander Yanai as, as an example, and just you see red. Uh, and, and you see it all over Shas, a very negative relationship, very negative attitude towards the Hashmonaim, uh, who were the kings. And so you see, see that Hanukkah has kind of a, a, sort of a, a, lot of, a lot of baggage around it, um, which, is, which is part of the problem. Parenthetically, you can even see it in our tefillot. So for instance, on uh, Shabbat morning and Yom Tov morning, after we read the Haftarah, we have four brachot. brachot. The third of those fourth brachot starts with the words Samchenu. Familiar with it, right? Samchenu. Now listen to this line. Mashiach should come soon. We should be very happy. A stranger should not sit on his throne. So the, I don't know, consensus, but the mainstream opinion among scholars is that that prayer was an anti-Hashmonai prayer, which is a protest against the non-Davidites, non-Judahites sitting on the throne of Israel. So there was a lot of negative feeling towards them. Now there's another component to it, which is that Hanukkah is essential, essentially a military victory. We're celebrating a military victory. So celebrating a military victory when we are ascendant and we're in power makes sense. It's kind of hard to celebrate a military victory when we're under the brutal um, heel of Roman oppression. And so as a result of that, Hanukkah also became quieter. And as a result of that, also a whole different aspect of Hanukkah became highlighted, which is the aspect that you need to know if Alex Trebek, Oliver Shalom, asks you for the Hanukkah question, right? Which is what we're celebrating because of course on Jeopardy, it's the miracle of the oil and not a military victory. So there's a lot of reasons there why there is no Masachet Hanukkah and, uh, and, why, um, and why there's not even Mishnayot of Hanukkah. Again, there was ambivalence both about the holiday itself and about the heroes of the holiday. Um, and, uh, and so that's just as far as kind of like as a presentation. However, there certainly was, and I will suggest a little bit today and a little bit next week. And if anybody here attends the Wednesday year, then you'll, you'll hear it much more. Um, why the real locus for the development of Hanukkah, the way we know it in the Gemara was not in Eretz was Dafka and Bavel. Um, and that, uh, that um, Hanukkah became, of course, a prominent holiday, and there is rabbinic literature on it. There's Breitot, and there's Memrot, and there's discussions. Uh, and so the editors of the Gemara had a, where, where are they going to put this collection of material? And they decided to put it in the second chapter of Masachat Shabbat, because the second chapter of Masachat Shabbat, as you all know, because we say it every Friday night, is devoted to the laws of lighting candles, and it's the Parak and lists the kind of wicks and oils that are permissible and that are forbidden for Shabbat candles. And that leads us to the discussion about, well, what kind of wicks and oils can you use for Hanukkah candles? There's the same standards, different standards. And then from there on, we're off to the races and all the Hanukkah material just comes right there. And then we move back to Shabbat and that's it for Hanukkah. Hanukkah pops up here and there a little bit in other places, but pretty much that's it. So when somebody around this time of year, and I'm doing this in some of my classes in high school, when somebody wants to study the Sugiot of Hanukkah, they open up Masachat Shabbat to Daf Chafalaf, 
either Amad Aleph or Amabet, depending where they want to start, and they have the next three daf to, to, to occupy themselves. So we're going to look at the chief sugya. Um, I want to bring one thing to your attention uh, from the beginning before we get started, and this requires, I apologize, but this requires a, uh, also a little bit of, a, of an introduction, but it's a vital introduction. As I mentioned earlier, um, there is a whole trove of uh, Jewish literature composed during the period between what we'll call it the end of the Persian and the beginning of the Greek period, or the end of the Persian through the Greek period, uh, which is after biblical works are completed, or at least completed in their, in their raw form, and the beginning of rabbinic literature. And, uh, you know, people don't stop writing, people don't stop creating, and people don't stop commenting, and uh, et cetera. And so we have a whole uh, oeuvre of literature that we refer to as the Apocrypha. And the Apocrypha uh, includes a whole range of books. Um, just going to touch like the uh, a tip, a tip of a tip of the iceberg. Um, but the most famous book for our purposes, meaning for the purposes of the Shira in this time of year, is the book of Maccabee. Uh, the book of Maccabee is really not the book. It's four different books, which are not from the same author, not from the same time, not the same style. Uh, the first book of Maccabees, what you're looking here is a, a text of the second. The first book of Maccabees was written close to the time of the events. It was written in Hebrew, evidently. Uh, we don't have it in the original, but I'll tell you about that in a second. Uh, it was written as an attempt to be included in Tanakh. You could tell by the style that it wanted to be included in Tanakh. It did not get included in Tanakh. The determination of the rabbis was that it was not written Baruch HaKodesh, uh, that it was a regular history book that told the story of the rebellion and the wars. By the way, the Maccabean Wars lasted for 30 years. Hanukkah is the, almost at the beginning of that period. The wars continued for quite a while. And, um, and so the book of Maccabees, first book of Maccabees, is written in that style. The second book of Maccabees, which was originally written in Greek, and that's what we have it in Greek, uh, was written really as a very long, it was part, what we have is part of a long letter written to the Jews of Alexandria, telling them the story of what happened and asking them to agree to accept Hanukkah into their calendar. Right, this is, this is a, uh, a pitch for Hanukkah to be accepted as part of the Jewish calendar. It, of course, worked. Um, and what we have in 2 Maccabees was written evidently 80 to 100 years after the event. You know, it's not by uh, an eyewitness. And uh, the third and fourth book of Maccabees get much more apocalyptic and strange stuff. Now, what happened to the Apocrypha in one quick sentence is that the rabbis determined that the Apocryphal books, uh, which include Maccabees, include Jubilees, include um, the 12, the Testaments of the 12 tribes, include a whole range of very interesting books. Uh, the rabbis determined that they were out of, out of Tanakh. They were not in Tanakh. And, um, and some of them were actually interesting uh, um, uh, candidates. One of them, by the way, is very popular at this time of year, and that is the Book of Judith or Yehudit, a story that later authorities kind of wove together into the story of Hanukkah. Um, there's nothing in Yehudit about Hanukkah itself, but, uh, but that's an interesting connection. Um, and you have all sorts of very interesting literature, but the rabbis voted it out. As a, as a result of it, the, the rabbis voted lignos. Now, lignos literally means to bury away, and it's what you do with sanctified texts that are no longer usable. 
but it's also what you do. And another way of saying we go is to ban. And so these texts were banned. They were not used in Jewish circles. And as a result of them, that we lost them. The church, however, kept the Apocrypha alive. And as a result of that, with one exception of one book of the Apocrypha, we have the Apocrypha, all of it in, what we have is in Greek. And so when we, you read the Apocrypha in English or you read the Apocrypha in Hebrew, I have Kahana's Sfarim on my shelf. When you read the Apocrypha in Hebrew, you're reading a translation from the Greek from the Hebrew. In some cases, some cases it was originally written in Hebrew. Hebrew was lost. We have the Greek. We translated it back. So the apocryphal books, including pseudepigraphal books, pseudepigraphal means it's a book that's ascribed to an author but falsely. So, for instance, there's a book called Chokhmat Shlomo, the Wisdom of Solomon. It was written uh, maybe a thousand years, eight hundred years after Solomon died, but it's called Chokhmat Shlomo. There's seven different seven books called Sefer Chanoch, Chanoch, the famous. Uh, um, pre-Diluvian character who dies early at the age of 365, and Enenu, Elohim. Right, so these, these, these books are pseudepigraphal, and they're all part of this thing called the Apocrypha. The reason I'm bringing that up is because we look at this literature and we realize that it either is, in some cases, historically accurate, because it's telling a particular story, or more significantly, it reflects the Midrashic orientation of the times. Now, just one interesting thing before I leave you, just because there's just so much fascinating stuff about this, is sometimes you will read something in the Apocrypha, and it's all available, it's available online, it's easy to find. You'll read something in the Apocrypha that sounds a little familiar, and then you'll realize that you know it from the Midrash from 800 years, 600 years later. In other words, there's a particular tradition that first shows up, as far as we're concerned, in writing in an Apocryphal book, it's a tradition that's a legitimate Jewish tradition. It's been around for a while. And then it makes its way into the Midrash. Um, countless examples of that, um, including about Abraham's young years and about Yosef and Mrs. Potiphar to put it into the Parsha, all sorts of things which start there and then make their way into the Midrash. Okay, all that aside, I want to take a look at one passage in the Book of Maccabees because it's important and I'm going to use it to answer the single most famous question about Hanukkah. What is the single most famous question about Hanukkah? It is the question asked by the Beit Yosef in his commentary on the tour in Tafresh Ayin in, in chapter uh, 670, in paragraph 670 of the tour. He asked the question, why is Hanukkah eight days long? Right, very familiar question. After all, according to the story, Hanukkah should be seven days long because there was enough oil for one day. He provides his own answer. Others provide another answer. I have a book at home that has 250 answers, which is the Gematria of Nair. There are over 500 recorded answers. And by the way, some of them are silly, of course, but a lot of them are very ingenious, brilliant answers. Um, uh, one day is for the war, seven days for the, for the oil, um, all sorts of, of, of other approaches to it. But of course, the question is premised on a questionable premise, which is that the reason we're celebrating eight days is because of the miracle of the oil. The reason that I point that out is because if you read the story itself, which we will get to, um, or which we will get to hopefully here uh, in the Gemara, you'll see that it actually doesn't say that we celebrate eight days because of the eight days of the oil. And uh, a longer version of that story actually has a different reason for eight days. But with just that Gemara in mind, that's what we think it is, and ask the question. However, we're going to look at Maccabees 2, and Maccabees 2 is a good 400 years before that statement in the Gemara. Uh, and it tells us the following story. 
It, uh, and again, Maccabees 2 is written well after the event, roughly 80 to 100 years after the event. It's written by somebody who's not an eyewitness, working on a tradition. And it was written, again, as a letter to try to highlight the significance of the holiday. So I can't testify to this history of the statement. I can testify that this is what it says in Maccabees. That's what it's in Maccabees 2. And in Maccabees 2, de describing the war and the story that happens, um, he says they came in, they purified the temple, and they then made a celebration on the 25th of Kislev, which, by the way, just as an important aside, 25th of the same day that three years early, earlier, the Greeks had put their idol on the Mizbeach. Now, the Greeks had, in other words, picked the 25th of the winter month to put the idol on the Mizbeach, and we waited until that day to rededicate the Mizbeach, because we had already come in weeks earlier and cleaned up the place, uh, and it's a specifically in-your-face thing. You know, you're going to do it on that day. Well, on the same day, we're going to rededicate our avodah, our proper worship to God. And evidently, the reason that they chose that day to put the idol on is because the 25th of the winter month was a pagan holiday. We know that holiday. It's called Saturnalia or Saturnurias. Um, and the Gemara mentions it, but it, we're familiar with the holiday. It's Mithras and it's the Dias, Dis, how do you call it? Natal de Sol Invictus as a Roman holiday. It's, it's the, the day that's right around the winter solstice. And so we pick that same day, you're going to defile it, we're going to put that same day to, to start it. However, the point is that I highlighted is they celebrated this holiday for eight days. Why? To be like Sukkot. Why do they want to be like Sukkot? Because they remembered just two months earlier being like wild animals hide, hiding out in the mountains. These are guerrilla fighters unable to celebrate Sukkot. And therefore, on the first day, according to this report, on the first year, sorry, they took Lulav and Etrog. They walked around the Mizbeach. They did a full Sukkot. And they read, said Hallel, which means that the Hallel, the eight days, all of that is really... Uh, and by the way, so there's some Machronim who answer the Joseph's question this way. They say it's Sukkot. That's why it's eight days. All right? And, it, and the holiday actually used to be called Sukkot of Kislev. It gets another name. Uh, but but I'm giving you that because you're going to see something that's going to be significant for it. Okay. Our sugya is the central sugya of Hanukkah, right? This is the first third of it, really, or first fourth of it, right here in front of you. I put it here with um, punctuation and vowels and then on the side, so you'd see it's legit, you know, the, uh, the picture from the Gemara, from the print, printed Gemara. All right. And it's a very simple sugya. And we've studied it before, both in Dafyomi and in other contexts, but we're going to see that it's anything but simple. All right. Tana Rabbanan. You all see it? Tana Rabbanan right here. The top. Tana Rabbanan. So we're introducing a Braita. Now, we're going to point out that Braitot, as far as we know, were all composed where? Where were, were Braitot composed? So as far as we know, they're all composed in Eretz Yisrael. Breitot are part of the same literature that became the Mishnah, but the Breitot were the ones who weren't included in the Mishnah. And the names that you see in Breitot are typically Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Yudah, the same people that we call Tanaim who are in the Mishnah, right? So it's all Israeli, it's all Hebrew, because all halacha has been produced in Hebrew with a few exceptions. All right, Tana Rabbanan introduces a Breitot. Good. Mitzvat Chanukah. Can we see it? It's Fat Chanukah. Now, we may not get out of this sugya tonight, but that's all right. It's big. Ner Ishu Beito. 
which means what? The essential mitzvah of Hanukkah is, you can speak up, it's okay. What does it mean? Ner ishu veto. One man per household. One ner per household, which means I've got seven people in my house, four right now, but I got seven people in the family. The basic mitzvah of Hanukkah is one ner per person, per household. One ner. Second night, one ner. Third night, one ner. The whole holiday cost me eight nerot. I'm using the word ner instead of candle because candle misleads us to think wax, etc. We're not talking wax. We're talking about a, a, a lamp with oil and a wick. So I'll use the word ner. Okay. Baham mehadrin. Now this is something that is already unprecedented. It exists in no other um, passage in Chazal about any other mitzvah. Baham mehadrin. Now, how would you translate that word, Ham Mahadrin? Make it more beautiful, make it nicer. Oh, Those who like to make things nicer, and beautiful, right? Good. Strict. What? Strict. More, strict. more strict. Right, but you but you but the word hadar is, like Bill said, it's beautiful. So nice. You yeah. beautiful. You want to adorn it, right? And by the way, we understand that. This is adorning the mitzvah. Because now, instead of having one nair per household, it's one nair per person. By the way, who lights the nair per person? So, I, so we have four people living in our house right now. Three of them are off, already off on their, on their own lives. So four people. So who lights the candles? Who lights the nairot? Each person. So each person lights their own. Or I light four. Unclear. Okay, but we'll leave that alone for right now. That's Mahadrin. Now, that's, again, unprecedented. It does not exist in the context of um, of uh, of Arbicosot. It doesn't exist in the in the context of Megillah. It doesn't exist in the context of Mitzvah Adaim or of restaurants. What restaurants? Say again. Restaurants. What about restaurants? Mahadrin, right? But <laughs> Mahadrin is is not presented in Halacha as being here's a way to do a mitzvah. And here's a better way to do a mitzvah. We generally have two grades at, at most in discussing a mitzvah, which is ideally you do it this way, but if you only did that, you're still yotze. That's pretty much what we have, right? We don't have a, um, you know what, um, um, uh, eat kazait uh, matzah. Mahadrin eat two kazaitim. That's not true. It's a kazait, right? So you can on your own try to enhance the physical properties of a mitzvah, with heder mitzvah, that's something else. You want to make a very nice lulav case. You want to spend extra money on a nice etrog and hope you have a baby boy as a result. Ushpizin, right? That's fine. I hope you saw the movie. But, um, but there's no. It's not built in the halacha. Here it's built in, and it gets more. It's not good enough to be madrin. You got to be madrin. Mina madrin. And by the way, this is likely the most famous that exists out there in the world. Because more people have attended a one-time Talmud class around this time of year when somebody's taught this piece. Or kids come home and they talk, yeah, Beit Shammai says you start with eight and go to one. Beit Hillel says you go one be eight. There's probably no, no more famous Beit Shammai dispute out there in the world than this one. But you realize how bizarre it is? I'm not saying it's bizarre to say one to eight or eight to one. It's machloket. You realize how bizarre it is that the machloket is not about the mitzvah? The machloket is about mahadrin mina mahadrin. 
In other words, oh. there's a basic mitzvah. We all agree what it is. There's a better way to do it, which is weird. We all agree what that is. And there's a super duper way to do it. And there we disagree about how to do it. Do you understand how strange that is? <laughs> now, this is like ashray. For many people, they've seen the sugya so many times. And every year around Hanukkah, they study it. They don't stop to step back and say, wait a second. This is weird. And because we often see it in a different context of regular learning, we also don't even measure it against our regular <clears throat> learning standards. So that's what we're going to try to do here. Question. Yeah. Is You're muted again. So I start again. Oh, Hold sorry. it down and I say. Okay. Isn't it the Svartim who do that? They do the they do the Mahadran. We do the Mahadran to Mahadran. No. Well, as far as I know, everybody does Mahadran and Mahadran according to Beit Hillel. There's one other difference, though, that I'll get to, right? Which is um, that everybody, we all follow Beit Hillel. The first night, this Thursday night, we're all going to have one candle. Friday, Friday late afternoon, two. Saturday night, three, etc. Nobody's going to do the filling. Nobody's doing Beit Shammai, and nobody's doing less than that. Unless it's like, you know, war-torn, oil-starved, how do you call it? We go back to the basic mitzvah. But what there is in Sephardim and Ashkenazim is that many Sephardim, not all, but many Sephardim will have only one candle per household, the second night two per household, right? Which is Mahadrin and Mahadrin according to one particular approach, which we'll get to. Whereas most Ashkenazim will have multiple Neirot per people in the house. And now we have Chanukiyot, so each have their own Chanukiyah. And of course, you know, like Ben Hillel, correct? So we're going to see where that came from. We're going to see about that pretty soon. So as if things were not confusing enough, we get more confusion. So I want to introduce you to a group of people that we've already met in Dafyomi a lot, but it's good to be reminded of how, how the system works. Important to remember, everything here is Baal Peh. There is nothing written down. Nothing written down. Tana Rabbanan means they repeated it. They taught it orally. It was all taught orally. Now, we are in Bavel. We, right now, we are sitting in Iraq somewhere in a Beit Midrash studying this. And we're going to get news. We just got news about a Brita. So we assume that there's a Tana standing in the Beit Midrash who gets up and recites and says, Mitzvah Chanukah Neri Shuvetot, etc. That's what we assume because there's no, be no other way for us to get it. And now we have a report about how they understood this machloket, one to eight or eight to one in Eretz Israel. How do we get that? So Amar Ula, right? Ula, now who's Ula? Ula is a rabbi who was a student of Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan is the big rabbi in Tveria. He is the chief rabbi of Tveria. And Rabbi Yochanan teaches in Tveria, and he has several students who, for different reasons, regularly travel to Bavel and back. Many of them are from Bavel. They made Aliyah to learn with him, and they go back to visit family or they have business. They go back to Bavel. And when they go back to Bavel, the first place they come to is Pumbadita. And they come, get off the boat, they go to the yeshiva, they walk into the yeshiva, and they report. This is what Rabbi Yochanan said. These people are called Nechute, literally the people who go down. And they go down from Israel to Pavel, because anything from Israel is down. And you go to Kimon Everest from Israel, you made your read out. And, <laughs> and, uh, and they come down to Bavel and they repeat and they report on what's going on in Israel. 
So Amar Ula, Ula comes and he says, So there are two Amoraim in the West. Now we're used to thinking of Israel as the East, but if you're in Bavel, Israel is the West. Ma'arava is Israel. There are two Amoraim in the West who disagree about this matter. Right, so we have a disagreement between Hill and Shammai, and now we're going to have a disagreement about the disagreement. Okay, and what are their names? Rabbi Yossi Bar Avin, Rabbi Yossi Bar Zvida. Now, what do you notice right about right away about them? Same name. They're the same name, which is what leads to the next statement. Chadamar, one of them said, and Ula forgot which one said what. Yossi said this, and Yossi said that. So. Right, so we don't know which one said what. We don't. We're not really concerned with that now. Uh, you'll see why. One of them said, "You know why Beit Shammai said you start with eight and go to one? Because you want to mark how many days are yet to come. So the first night you light eight. There's you know, still eight days to Hanukkah countdown. On the last night you have one. The last night the lights going out. Right. The Chadamar, the other and and Beit Shammai and Behilos is to How many days have gone? Which, by the way, is a little bit odd because then when should you light it? You should light it at the end of the first day, not the beginning, right? You should light it at the end of the day because how many days have gone? At the end of the day, one day is gone. But all right, we'll leave that alone. All right. Now that whole one of the pieces of that whole long introduction was for these two words. Keneged parehachad. Parehachad. A par is a bull. I'm not kidding. A par is a bull. And um, um, on Sukkot, we're commanded to bring korbanot like every other holiday. But on Sukkot, we have a, a, a weird command along with the usual ones of 14 lambs and two rams, etc., which is to on the first day to bring 13 bulls, on the second day to bring 12, 12, 12. 11, down to seven, right? And parehachag, the bulls of Sukkot, <coughs> Go in a descending order. Right? So one of them said, you know why Beit Shammai says you go eight to one? Because Parehachad. Okay? And Tamad Beit Hillel, what's Beit Hillel's reason for saying one to eight? The Ma'alim Bakodesh Fein Moridin. Ma'alim Bakodesh Fein Moridin means we go up in holiness, not down. So it means you're going to do something in a sequence, you want the sequence to go up. We understand the psychology of that. Important to note that Malim Bakodesh Ve'en Moridin is a halacha of the Beit HaMikdash. It shows up in the Mishnah first in the context of Shtehalachem. It's used to identify what happens to a Kohen understudy, Kohen Gadol, who becomes Kohen Gadol, and then the real Kohen Gadol comes back to work. What happens to him? He can't go down. It's about the Beit HaMikdash. Right? Keep that in mind because it sounds like, according to the second opinion, Beit and Hill are disagreeing about are agreeing that Mahadrin and Mahadrin want to right, to remember and recreate the Beit HaMikdash. And the question is, which Beit HaMikdash component do you want to take? The unique Korban of Sukkot or the general rule? And according to the first opinion, it sounds like they're saying that Chum and Hillel are simply trying to say, well, the reason you light more than one candle is to let people know what night it is. So what better way to let them know what night it is? Is it better to let them know how many nights have gone or how many nights are coming? Count up or count down, right? So two different approaches to what their machlokat is. But the approaches are consistent. In other words, according to the first Yossi, Yossi X, according to Yossi X, Beit Shammai's reason, Beit Shammai and Hillel agree that, what we, that the point of the Mahadrin and Mahadrin 
is to tell people what night it is. And the only question is, what's the better way to do that, up or down? By the way, would it work to have, according to that first opinion, would it work to have a community where there were some two people doing Beit and some people doing Beit Hillel? Mm. Would that work? I don't know. I don't know. Think about it. It's interesting. Would it work? If the purpose of Mahadrin and Mahadrin was to let people know what night it is, and Baitchamai says the way to let them know what night it is to count down, and Bait Hillel says to count up, would it work to have both customs in one town? No. Not at all. It would defeat itself. You should have no idea what night it is. You see two candles. Is is it the seventh night or the second night? You wouldn't know. So that would have to be consistent in one town. The second approach is to say, the second Yossi is to say, they're disagreeing about which component of the Beit HaMikdash I want to remember. Is it the Ma'alim Bakotis, the general piece about going up, or is it the unique Sukkot thing? And now we understand why, because Hanukkah was originally designed as a second Sukkot, kind of like a Pesach Sheni. So I, I get why they do Pariachad. All right, so I understand that. In that case, by the way, if it was the second Yossi, would it be a problem in one town to have both Ben Hale and Ben Shammaiites? Would that be a problem? What do you think? Probably not. Why not? No reason why, why it would be a problem. Because uh, some people are celebrating this way, so is that, but there's, there's not, it's not an informational piece, which is creating confusion. It's just an <clears> aesthetic <throat> piece, right? Some people have their big, huge uh, Hanukkah uh, things out on the lawn already, you know, and, and that's what they're doing it. Some people put blue lights and whatever they do. Oh, okay, whatever you think about that. But, you know, different aesthetic ways to do it. Some people sing Mao's sort of this tune, and some people sing Mao's sort of that tune. Right? It's aesthetic, Asma, so it wouldn't make a difference. Okay? Which will lead to the next story, which should now not be surprising. All right, but I'm going to ask you this before we go further. According to Yossi 1, where the purpose of the Mahadrin and Mahadrin is to let people know what night it is, I'm going to now present the, the following problem. And Marsha is going to get back to what you asked before. All right. I have four people in my house. I do. I'm Mahadrin and Mahadrin. I'm a Beit Hillel like, like we all are. So on Saturday night, I'm going to light 12 Nerot. Right? Correct? Mahadri, okay. I have four each night, second night, eight, third night, 12. Somebody walks by and sees 12 and they wrote. What night is it? They're not all together. I don't know about that. Why not? Oh, because you're living in the 14th century already. You're a modern guy. You're living in the 14th century when we have Hanukkiyot. I'm an old timer. I'm living back in the 4th century when all we have is oil lamps. We line a bunch of oil lamps up together. They're all together. So if I see 12 Nerot, what night is it? No idea. I've got at least six. What? I've got at least six possible choices. Right? Could be the first night. Big house. 12 people. Could be the second night. i got six people in the house. It is the third night I got four people in the house. Could be the fourth night and I got three people in the house. Could be the sixth night and I got two people in the house. It could be the twelfth night. Sorry, just kidding. I only have five possibilities. I was going to 12 nights. But I, 
In other words, if I do Mahadrim and Mahadrim here, I'm going to lose the informational component. Okay, so right away I want to show you Tosfot here because th this is hot, and then we're going to we're going to uh, look at the Rambam because we got to see these right away. Tosfot right here. That Tosfot. Tosfot on the spot says Mahadrim and Mahadrim Nirelluri. Ri is Rabbeinu Yitzchak. That is where Tosfot starts. Rabbeinu Tom's nephew, nephew, right? Debate Shammai with Hillel. Lokaimi Ella Aner Ishu Beto. In other words, Becham Bet Hillel, their their comment about going up or going down, is only talking about one per household. In other words, they say you have one per household, and Becham Bet Hillel the second night two per household. That's it. And according to Chama, my first night you'll have eight. I don't care how many people you got in the house. The second night seven, etc. Last night you'll have one. I don't care how many people you got in the house. Why? Shekain yesh yoter hidur. Then there's a hidur. What's the hidur? Then people could tell what night it is. But if you have a nair representing each person and you keep multiplying it, so by the last night I will have uh, uh, 32, right? Nobody will know what night it is. Somebody will come by my house a week from Thursday night. They'll see 32 Nerod going, and they'll say, this guy has a huge family and is violating every possible COVID thing and having a party. He's got 32 people over. It's the first night of Hanukkah. I knew it was a Thursday night, right? But they don't know how many people I got in the house. So Tosvot, Marsha is telling you that that's what the Sfarim do. The Sfarim do what Tosvot says. The Machaber, Yosef Karo, adopts Tosvot's approach and says there should be one ner per household. And the second night, two, et cetera. The last night, eight. Well, where, does, where does it say that it's our responsibility, each one of us, to, uh, to, to inform other people as to what night it is? Oh, good. Exactly. So Manny asks a great question, which is the premise of Tosfot is strange. Tosfot is saying you're creating an informational co confusion. But who says that it's our responsibility to inform people what night it is? What kind of premise is that? So Tosfot says that's exactly what Yossi number one, whoever he is, is saying. Mahadrin and Mahadrin, what are they trying to do? They're trying to tell you either how many days are coming or how many days are gone. In other words, they're trying to inform you what night it is. That's that also understands it. And if that's the case, you're going to goof it up if you have one per person, because nobody knows how many people in the house, and they can't do the math. Not that not they're not capable of it. They can't do the math. They don't have all the information. I don't know that you have four people in your house and divide how many narrow you have by four. So you're right. And that's going to lead us straight to the Rambam. Okay? And here's the Rambam. And the Rambam in Perak Dalad of Hilchot Chanukah um, says the following, And by the way, this is like our Brita laid out in simple Mishneh Kibur. The mitzvah of Chanukah is that each house should have one ner. There are a lot of people who are living alone in one camp. If you want to beautify the mitzvah, Notice the way Rambam says it. You light candles to correspond to how many people you have in the house. 
Not they light. So I would light four. Not each person lights their own. Ner l'chol echad v'chad. Bein anashim, bein anashim. Men, women, they all count for this. V'hamader yater alzeh. If you want to be really beautify it. Oseh mitzvah minu mubcharb. Madlik ner l'chol echad v'chad b'lada v'shon. You light one ner for each person in the house on the first night. Mosif olech b'chol layla v'layla chad. And each night you keep adding one for each person. And then to make sure that you're not confused, the Rambam says, Kate Sad. Haresha, you want share by the Asura. Let's say you have 10 people in your house. First night, you light 10. Second night, 20. Until the last night, you have 80. That's the Rambam. So it sounds like Tosvot prefers Yossi number one. And that the whole reason of Rambam Yahadrin is informational. It says Mahadrin Mahadrin is going to goof up the information unless you skip the Mahadrin and stay with one per house. And Rambam seems to, to favor Yossi too and says, I'm not here to, like Manny said, it's not my job to inform you what night it is. And you figure it out. It's my job to make a beautiful mitzvah. And the more they wrote, the more beautiful. And one per person, and then each, at each night, it's gorgeous. 80 candles, beautiful. Right? So two very different approaches to the same issue. And that's the Rambam. Now, in a curious twist of halachic history, and this is well known, uh, the the Machaber, the Yosef Karo, adopts Tosfot's position. And the Ramah, Ramosha Israelis, sort of adopts the Rambam's position with an important twist. And so Ashkenazim end up doing the Rambam and Svartim do the Tosfot, which is like unheard of. It's like switching geographical gears. But we don't exactly do the Rambam because what's our custom? What's everybody here's custom? What do you do in your house? What do you do? Add a candle each night. Yeah, and how many? How many, gets how many candles? Everybody does their own. Everybody does their own. You don't like for everybody. Each person has their own. That's not the Rambam. That's the Ramah. Ramosh Yisrael says it that way. It's similar to the Rambam, but not exactly in that I light, and my son lights, my wife lights with me, but I light, one son lights, one son lights, when our daughter's home, she lights. They all have, each has their own. Right? It was not exactly the Rambam, but it's the same spirit of that. Of Again, okay, so good. So we got the basics here. But we still have a huge problem, which is how do you have a mitzvah and a mitzvah which we'll agree is you don't want to ever say is, is secondary, but a mitzvah which is sort of relegated to non-masachat status, to non-mishta status. Nothing shows up in the mishta anymore. And you have this mitzvah of all mitzvot in the Torah is the one where it says Mahadrin and Mahadrin and Mahadrin and there's a machloket about that. It seems haywire. How come nobody talks about uh, the thing of, of uh, uh, not Hidr mitzvah, the Pursuman uh, Yisra? Yeah, so... So, I mean, so that's... If, if yeah, so, very... All right, so what Abe's asking is Pursuman which is publicized in the miracle. I'm going to talk about it on Wednesday a lot. Bersumanes, which is publicized in the miracle, um, seems to actually be what's driving Yossi number one. That you want to publicize what night it is as a way of saying, look how long this lasted. Maybe. Right? Could be. And maybe the more light there is, the more you're publicizing it, it's catching more people's attention, whatever. Right? That seems to be sort of that 
the undergirding of this whole discussion is Prisumanes, how to publicize it. But you see, I, I, I put down three questions here that, uh, that seem to kind of drive the whole discussion, which is, um, which is about this bright, the bright is strange, right? The word Mahadrin is also a little bit of a problematic word. Um, so I want to just take you back here to this Rashi. Mahadrin. Um, you translated Mahadrin, a few of you translated as those who beautify, and you're absolutely right. And Rambam exactly says it that way. He says, Hamahadarata mitzvah, to beautify the mitzvah. You want to beautify it more, beautify it even more, right? Our problem is going to be with Rashi. You see the Rashi, which is source five, it's one line, and it's actually three words, two of which aren't, aren't even, uh, only one, one of which is not even Rashi's word. Right here it says, Now the preposition there is the one that's difficult. If Hamahadrin meant to beautify, what word should appear before Hamitzvot? The Rambam used that word. I'll remind you, the Rambam right here said this. To beautify the mitzvah. What did, Ram, what did Rashi use here? What does he say? What does that mean? So the reality is that lahader in Hebrew, means to beautify. Lahader in Babylonian Aramaic means to run after. It's, by the way, a word that we encounter all the time in the Gemara. To run after, to chase, or to turn around, come back. Not related at all to the Hebrew Hadar. Hadran? What? The word hadran, just like, like yeah, we're make a yes, we're coming back to you exactly, right? Oh, yeah, okay. so, so what does that mean now? Those who do what? Those who run after mitzvot, beautiful idea. Instead of those who beautify mitzvot, those who run after mitzvot, okay? And it says what they do is they have one for each person now, so very nice. The problem here, though, is language. Remember, we started, this is a Brighto. Brightot are written in Hebrew. Brighton are composed, Brightot are composed in Israel. Rashi is reading this word as if it was written in Babel. Mm. That's part of the problem. And because Hanukkah is coming, I'm going to leave you with another problem. Let's take a look at this next piece here. Panorabanan. Another bright, this is the, the very next thing in the Gomorrah. You could see it here. Moridin, um, and then here I cut that out, but it's exactly the next piece. Panorabanan. This is now where you put Ner Chanukah. Ner Chanukah mitzvah l'anicha al-petach betob machutz. What's the mitzvah of Ner Chanukah? Where should you put it? Al-petach betob mibachutz. The opening of your house outside. outside. Outside your door, right? Your doorway on the outside, right? If you live in a loft, a loft doesn't mean an upstairs apartment. A loft means 
you're in somebody else's house and you have the second floor. So you don't have a door. Then you put it in the window that faces the public. When it's a time of sakana, you put it on your table and that's good enough. What kind of danger are we talking about? What sort of danger are we talking about that, would, that we would be allowed to put the Ner Hanukkah on our table and not outside? Fire. What? Say it again? Fire. Okay, so fire is an interesting possibility, although normally you would say it'd be the opposite. You would not want it indoors, rather outdoors, but you could say if it was very, very windy and the wind was gusting, uh, gusting up fire. <coughs> Anti-Semitism. What? Anti-Semitism. Yeah. Good. Yeah, All right. All right, good. Anti-Semitism. I would agree with you. That's my, that would have been my instinct. Shata Sakana is right now it's an anti-Semitic period. They're having protests, they're having riots, they're coming in trashing places. You don't want to publicize the fact that you're practicing Judaism. They're going to come give you a problem. I'm with you. Look at Rashi. Now remember, this is a Brito, correct? Okay. Shata Sakana. What does Rashi say? This needs, I apologize, this needs an introduction. Um, who was the reigning nation in Persia in the year zero? Romans versus? Because not the Persians. Right. Well, what are they called? They're called the Parthians. Roman Parthians, okay? The Parthian Empire crumbled and was taken over in the year 227 by a new empire known as the Sassanids Empire. And the Sassanids, during the beginning of their empire, showed a lot of favoritism to the priests of a religion known as Zoroastrianism. And the Zoroastrianism priests were known as Chabari. And the Chabari had a lot of power during that period. Look what Rashi says. Rashi says, what's Shatasakana? By the way, Zoroastrianism has a lot of fire ritual in their religion. They had a rule, a law on their holiday. Um, that you weren't allowed to have a candle anywhere but in their temple. So in other words, if you have a candle in your house, they're not going to bother you. If you have a candle outside, they're going to come, they're going to trash your house, they're going to give you a lot of problems because you're insulting their religion and they happen to be in charge. And so therefore, they're going to... So that second second you can put in. And I'll show you as an example. Later on in Masachat Shabbat, in the context of Muktza, Rav was asked the question, are you allowed to move a lit ner, lit ner Hanukkah on Shabbat if one of these chabari comes around on Shabbat? And he said, yeah, by the way, you could. Why? So Rashi explains that, that the issue is that if, um, if they see it in your chatzer, right, um, it's ner Hanukkah, which you light outside, and they see it, they're going to come and make a lot of problems because you're only allowed to light in their temple. Okay, fine, I get it. But I have the following problem. Why is the Breitah in Eretz Yisrael from before the year 220 talking about a Shata Sakana in Bavel after the year 230? You see that we have a both geographical and chronological problem? We're talking about a text here, which is a Breitah. 
And as a Brighta, we assume Eretz Yisrael and we assume Tanaitic period. And within the Brighta, it says, but if it's a time of Sakana, which I could interpret, like you said, anti-Semitism or fire. But Rashi interprets it as being a Babylonian problem. So how does Rashi understand this Brighta? Where does Brighta come from? So one thing I'll tell you right now, we're going to end right on time because we have to get show. I will tell you one thing right now is that all of our assumptions, we have to revisit. We have to revisit them. And these are things that impact on us in our study of Dafyomi and every day. And one assumption that we have to revisit is that Brightot are purely Israeli. We have Brightot Bavliot. But the other assumption that we have to revisit is that we look at a statement, and this I've mentioned numerous times, we look at a statement and we assume the statement was composed as is. And it's not necessarily the case. Often we will see statements that are pieces that get put together. Now we find that sometimes in the, in the Mishnah explicitly. The Mishnah will give a rule and then we'll say, Zo Mishnah Rishona. Mishnah Amru, Amru. So it'll say, okay, that's the rule. That's what the rule used to be. And the more recent Beitin changed the rule. We have that in the Mishnah explicitly. But sometimes we have to be clever and figure out where things might have gotten added in, gotten soldered together into one single unit. So we're going to look at next week is we're going to take a look at the sugya with fresh eyes. And we're going to see a whole different thing going on. And we're going to see that the practices of Hanukkah in Eretz Yisrael and in Bavel were not the same. They were different. And that we're going to find how our sugyas fused them together into the practice that became what we do. So we'll have uh, four nights of Hanukkah uh, before completing it, and then four after completing it. We'll divide it now. We'll see you next Monday at three thirty, and we'll go from there. Thank you. Okay. Chagorim sameach. Anybody who's interested is welcome to join our Wednesday shear. If not, listen to the recording. I'm going to touch on some of these topics, but take it in a very, very different direction about the origins of Hanukkah um, and uh, the culture comp with the Greeks. Greeks. If you're interested, let me know and I'll send you a link. If not, then uh, if you can't, then let me know and I'll send you the link afterwards to the recording. Okay. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Shaka.